The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Gloria in excelsis Deo, et in terra Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the liturgical year on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Joshua Guncher, and on this episode, I'm joined, as always, by Father Charles McGuire of St. Gertrude the Great Roman Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. This episode, as is the case for all of our non-sponsored episodes, is free for the first 15 minutes to non-members. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit restorationradionetwork.com, go to the member area on the menu bar, and there you can find out details on becoming a member. If you are not a member and you would like to purchase an individual episode, go to restorationradionetwork.com, navigate to the available episode of your choice, and simply click on the links below the player on the page. Once you complete that, you'll be emailed a secured download link and can listen to the program then. On this episode of the liturgical year, we're going to be discussing uh, a liturgical season, a feast day, and then some details that are intimately aligned with uh, with the liturgy itself, the liturgy par excellence. Uh, we're going to be starting off by talking about Passion Tide, which, uh, for those of us who are currently in the beginning of Lent, is going to be the next liturgical season that we would find if we were to have a calendar just of the church's liturgical seasons. Uh, we're going to talk about a feast day of a saint who is, perhaps next to St. Valentine, maybe the most misrepresented by the modern world, that is St. Patrick, uh, whose feast will be coming up this year before Passion Tide. When thinking about St. Patrick, we're also going to be talking about missionaries in general uh, and how they had to deal with probably the most important part of being a missionary. How would you say Mass in the mission fields? And not so much where you would say it or what you would use uh, if for some reason you didn't have all of the, the, the vestments you might need that you might have to procure or make yourself. But in terms of the actual uh, the matter of the bread and the wine for the Mass. How would you manage to get a hold of these things during your trips through the mission fields? Father, welcome back. Good to be here once more, Mr. Gensher. We start off with what seems like a, a season that is as far away as it could be right now. Here we are at the beginning of Lent, Passion Tide, another one of these brief liturgical seasons. We've just come through Septuagesima. We talked about that during our last episode. And we're at the point now where we've, we've gone through most of Lent. And there's a special sort of subset of Lent called Passion Tide, in which we are, in effect, through the liturgy of the church, and through its ceremonies, commemorating the passion over this, uh, over this period of time. H- how long is Passion Tide? Well, first of all, when does it start? Passion Tide starts always uh, two weeks before Easter. So you have um, you have Passion Sunday, then you have Palm Sunday, followed by Easter Sunday, 
And uh, so it's a two-week period, and it's sort of the climax of the whole Lenten season. When we have Passion Sunday and we're starting this this new season, is it is it actually a separate liturgical season, or is it considered formally part of Lent? I would say it's it's definitely formally part of Lent, but as I said, it's more the the climax. This is what all of Lent has has led up to. Now you're we're as we'll we'll discuss. Now we're commemorating all of the events that led up to our Lord's passion and death. I mean, historically, we could go back really to to our Lord's birth uh, and, and pick a moment where we say somehow this foreshadows uh, his death. Obviously, the church is going to pick a point at which to begin. But what is the point at which the events leading up to the passion, where is the church starting? What, what signals the beginning of Passion Tide in terms of what the church is uh, is commemorating. Really, it all started with our Lord's raising Lazarus from the dead. That's the point at which the Pharisees and the the high priests they became very jealous. Now that our Lord was taking away their followers, people were starting to follow him, recognize him as the Messiah, and the Jews in their pride did not like that one bit. And so it, it was at that point that they decided, hey, we better do something about this this man. And so they resolved then and there to put him to death somehow, somewhere, but it had to be soon. And they had to get, get rid of this man. So this was the point at which the straw had broken the camel's back. There really was no going back at this point. Our Lord had, had, had manifested... Uh, his divinity by his miracles enough times up to that point, and perhaps they might have just chosen to ignore him uh, as some sort of agitator. But this is when the church recognizes the official beginning of the passion. That's it. And from that point on, it just uh, got worse and worse. So it's not even the sufferings of our Lord yet. It's anticipating the sufferings of our Lord. Mm -hmm. Lead us through the anatomy of passion. I mean, what else? Obviously, we, we, we know from catechism, from scripture, the major events of our Lord's passion, even from praying the rosary. We're talking about two weeks, and there's a lot that can be crammed into two weeks. Walk us through the, the structure of passion time. How does the church, I mean, how is the church celebrating this liturgical season? How is it commemorating these um, these events in, in the life of, of our Lord leading up ultimately to his death? Well, I think um, first to remember, though, is the the history of it, and that is that Passion Tide is is truly a season that commemorates our Lord's mercy. Remember that the tendency is to think of the sin that the Jews committed, the worst sin that could ever possibly be committed, and that is deicide to to put your God to death. And we look at it from the point of view of the Jews' crime, their sin against their God, against our God, their God. And um, that's how we tend to look at it. But really, it's a season of mercy, true mercy that and the love of God that he would that God would become man for this moment. This moment when he would finally be able to suffer, to shed blood and to die. Even the Roman emperors and people back in those days recognized that, that it was a season of mercy, and they would actually pardon criminals. 
they would pardon the criminals that would not somehow harm society once they were freed. But the the criminals would just receive a pardon and be freed from jail, prison, and everything. And that was to commemorate how our Lord freed us from the sentence of of a spiritual death. I'm glad to understand, Father, that even historically, uh, courts wouldn't be in session because they would be dispensing justice at a time when it was popularly recognized that this was a season of mercy. Exactly. You would be out of work for two weeks, Mr. Guncher. <laughs> and actually, they would do that, though. All the, the seven days before Easter and the seven days after, there were no pleadings in court. There was uh, none of that. Even, as you said, there were the 40 days before Easter. No business could be done in law in the, in the courtroom. But so it was something. It was truly they saw it not as a time of justice, but of, of mercy and clemency. And so that was even how the Christians way back in the Roman, uh, Roman era uh, act. If you move on to the, you might say, as you said, the mystery of Passion Tide, there are three things that the church wants us to be thinking about during that time, and that is our Lord's Passion, first and foremost, that goes without saying, and the reading of the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, then you have the preparation of the catechumens for baptism, which is um, very important in the mind of the church. And then, of course, reconciling the public penitence, which happens ultimately on, on Holy Thursday. And so those are three main things that we're commemorating. One thing, Father, just to, to give our listeners uh, more, I mean, this is radio, we don't, we don't have the benefit of a picture, but the reconciling of the public pe- of the public penitence is something which probably doesn't need much of a much of a picture when it's explained it, just give us by way of background what we're looking at when we're talking about reconciling the public penitence and this is something we don't it, it may be it may be commemorated uh, during passion tide but what are we what are we talking about there well, yeah, we've we've got it pretty easy now nowadays with uh, being reconciled to to our Lord and to the Church. We've got it pretty easy, but um, in the ancient Church, they would um, all of those who committed grave public crimes when they they wanted to re- be restored to sanctifying grace, they would present themselves before the the bishop at the church on Ash Wednesday and ask for a public penance. And so they would, they would receive their ashes on their head, be clothed in sackcloth and um, confess their, their sins. Then they would be, there was a ceremony on Ash Wednesday in which the bishop would close the doors on the penitents. And for the 40 days of Lent, they would have to remain outside the church. Physically outside. Physically outside the church. And that was a, a public humiliation. Everyone that would walk by the church would see them and know these people were sinners. They couldn't shave. They, they couldn't bathe. They couldn't do any of the things that normal, normal people would do. So everyone that passed by knew these men were sinners. Um, and so the church would read certain things in the liturgy. There would be certain readings that would help to dispose them for true repentance until at last on Holy Thursday, they'd be allowed back to the sacraments. 
but it wasn't until Holy Thursday that they can do that, receive Holy Communion again after after the sacrament of penance. But just as a little aside, from our our catechism, we know that the indulgences that are given, say with indulgence attached to a prayer, a pious work, um, the indulgence that's given, say, in a number of years or quarantines or days, that that number comes from that ancient practice, that it's not, well, you'll spend 25 fewer days in purgatory. Um, it's, it's the equivalent satisfaction of a pub, of a penance of that many days that was imposed in the ancient church. Correct. What people have to remember is once the, the soul departs the body at the moment of death, the soul leaves time and enters eternity where there is um, there is no past, there is no future. It's an eternal present moment. So to say that um, if I say, for instance, the, the indulgence prayer, my Jesus mercy, well, that, that means that I am in purgatory 300 days less. That's, that's false because they're not there was never 300 days in the first place. So what it means is by saying that tiny prayer, my Jesus mercy, it is equivalent to fasting for 300 days or scourging yourself for 300 consecutive days. Um, that it is equivalent to that. My Jesus mercy, three words would be equivalent to that. 300 days worth of uh, scourging yourself. The church's treasury certainly is uh, is full. Truly, truly. What a mercy. What a mercy of God. Father, you've given us some idea of the anatomy of, of Passion Tide, but like everything that the church does, there is always something palpable about it. Not just perhaps the sound of her music, um, but actually something you walk into a church at a particular time of year and to someone who has been there before, you can almost guess where in the year you are. And this is perhaps the most noticeable change uh, in the church, maybe with the exception of uh, the stripping of the altars on Good Friday, where you walk into a church and you should know exactly what time of, of year it is. What, what are we looking at, Father, when we walk into a Catholic church? It's now Passion Tide. Um, what do we see? Well, you're not seeing the statues. That's, we're not seeing that, but we are seeing them all covered with um, the violet veils. Is it just statues? Statues, crucifixes. The only thing that does not have to be covered in the way of holy images would be um, the angels adoring. They are allowed to be left um left unveiled but the crucifixes uh images of the saints and the blessed they're all to be covered and the reason for that is um found in um the epistle of passion sunday that after our lord was having his argument with the jews and um our lord says to them before abraham was i am it says that they, they then took up stones to cast at our Lord and that Jesus hid himself. And so that is what the veils over the crucifix 
um, symbolizes that our Lord has hidden himself. And if the master hides himself, then all of his servants should be hidden as well and all of their glory. And that's why we we hide them as well. Plus, the idea is to focus ourselves not so much on the saints anymore, but to focus ourselves on our Lord and his passion, his humiliation, that he had to hide himself from his own creatures, that God hiding from man. Whereas in the when Adam had sinned, it was man hiding from God. Now that God is going to reconcile man to himself, he has to hide himself to, um, uh, to humble himself in that way. So uh, it's a beautiful thought, something to think about and meditate on during this passion season. Especially in a large church, I mean, it can be quite stark to walk in, and uh, especially with little children. That is the first thing that the children will notice is that everything that you normally would be able to look at during Mass is now covered up, with the exception of the angels. But uh, the, in, a, in a church with many statues and many images, many crucifixes, uh, it is it is a stark change. Yeah, that's actually something that I notice in um, Milwaukee and at St. Hugh of Lincoln. We have very few um, holy images there. Enough, but it's a small chapel, so you naturally won't have as many. So you might walk in and, and might see four or five veils. And then you come here to St. Gertrude's and um, you see many, many veiled images. But then it becomes quite impressive that... It, it the liturgy speaks to you, and that's what it's meant to be. It's not meant to be depressing or or anything like that. But once we learn to love the liturgy, we learn all of its lessons. Well, in this case, the liturgy really leaps out of the sanctuary, and it goes all over the church. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I again just from 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 personal experience, the the uh, I mean, this all ends. I know it, it ends at the Gloria on on um, on Holy Saturday, and uh, at the vigil, and it might take ten minutes to take all the veils off. Um, so I mean, it's it's quite like you say, Father. It's it's quite impressive to see so many statues covered, and then in a matter of a few minutes, mm-hmm. everything is revealed again. So this is something we see visually, but in terms of what's actually going on in the in the uh, the sanctuary, or at least or even in the um, the breviary, what changes do we see in terms of uh, the text of what's read in the liturgy? Well, for those of you that don't know what the breviary is, it's the, the book of prayers that the priest has to say. It contains all of the official prayers of the church and is sort of an, an extension of the Mass. Um, so next to the Mass, it is the most valuable prayer that the Catholic Church possesses. And then the rosary is um, is a close third. But those three prayers um, are the backbone of the spiritual life and something that we need to remember. But in the breviary, as well as in the Mass, the Gloria Patri, or the glory be to the Father, is, is omitted during this whole season of Passion Tide, except on feast days. So for instance, if you have some some bigger feast day or a, a saint, then it would be the normal rite of mass. But The feast of St. Joseph. Correct. Okay. But if it's just a ferial mass, a, a day when, when there is no feast day, 
then the Gloria Patri is omitted. It's it's done away with because obviously the the Glory be is a has a note of joy uh, attached to it. And during this time of of Passion Tide, we're contemplating our Lord's humiliation, all that He had to suffer for us, how He was mocked and, and spat upon, and all of the rest of it. He endured so much. And so it's as if all of his glory, the glory of his divinity was, was again, veiled, hidden from man. And so um, we omit the glory of Patri for that reason. One of the other things that, uh, that we talked about earlier, Father, uh, before the show was how the prayers at the foot of the altar, the prayers that are said right at the beginning of Mass, these are actually are changed as well. Um, and that there's a portion of, of, of the prayer starting with the Eutychame, which would normally be part of the prayers of the altar, the prayers at the foot of the altar, which simply aren't said. And in fact, we have the same practice for requiem masses that in the prayers at the foot of the altar, that part is skipped. Uh, but it's here; it's not just skipped. Um, it actually it it does it does appear somewhere um, in in the, the liturgy for Passion Passion Sunday. Yeah, that's again another lesson that the prayers at the foot of the altar have again their prominent note you might say is is joy but first you have to understand a little of the history of that that king david was the the author of the psalms obviously and wrote this one and it was during the time when his son absalom had begun to persecute him king david was driven out of jerusalem therefore had no access to the temple or to the sacrifices being offered. So at the beginning of the psalm, Psalm 42, at the prayers at the foot of the altar, we read, Judge me, O God, and distinguish my cause from the nation that is not holy. Deliver me from the unjust and deceitful man, for thou art my God and my strength. And so you see sort of um, a note of, of sadness. David misses the temple very badly wants nothing more than to go back to Jerusalem and see the holy sacrifice being offered. And then later on in the psalm, you, you, it turns to a note of hope and of, of expectant joy, hope in God. Um, and that's because he, he hopes that one day he will be delivered from his enemies and will be allowed to go back to the the temple and so that's why at the foot of the altar before the priest ascends the steps to the altar symbolizing mount calvary he's he's longing for that altar longing to enter into the the courts of um of the temple but during this time because there's that note of joy the psalm 42 is omitted completely because we're meant only the church wants us to be sorrowful not depressed not a bad sort of um sorrow but wants us to be sorry at seeing our lord suffer so much and that's what she wants to us to focus on so that psalm is omitted anything that has to do with the joy or with uh, the glory of our our savior it's all hidden during this time of passion tide because again our lord hid himself Father, let's move on for a moment. We're, we're going to, um, sometimes Passion Sunday falls before 
this feast. Sometimes it can fall after it. But let's talk a few moments about St. Patrick. This is one of the, uh, I mean, every, every nation has its, has its patron saint. I think that Ireland's is probably maybe the most famous in the world. But as, as I understand it, it, it's not just, it's not just Ireland's patron saint. I remember when uh, Father Nkamake, uh, who is not from Ireland, but whose nation uh, is, uh, is one under the banner of St. Patrick as well. Um, he, when, when he was uh, ordained, uh, there was a large image of St. Patrick put up because apparently St. Patrick is also the yeah, patron saint of Nigeria. It's really great. That was great the first time I heard that. And it goes back to the fact that um, it was the Irish that really converted Nigeria. And that was fairly recently. That wasn't too far in the past that they were they were converted from some pretty weird weird things. And they still suffer from horrendous paganism there. Oh, they do. In parts of the country. They do. But um, the, the French originally tried to convert Nigeria, but most of them, if not all, got sick and or died. Some of them even on the, the ships on the way over there, there was one uh, French priest that basically was at the point of death before he landed in Nigeria and begged our Lord to at least let his life and his sufferings that he endured on that ship uh, convert souls in Nigeria. But um, but it was actually, the French couldn't couldn't do it because of the, a lot of the health reasons, so they sent in the Irishmen, you know, son, good, good and loyal sons of St. Patrick. But they were the ones who converted Nigeria. Go figure. I think that was my first thought when I, when I heard that. So the, the apostle of Ireland, the patron of Nigeria, the pride and, and glory of freckle-faced and fair-haired people. But this was not just someone who we, we see these absurd celebrations before St. Patrick's Day. We're talking about a saint who wasn't even Irish, and who has become. I mean, he he may as well have been Nigerian. <laughs> but let's 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 find out a little bit about about St. Patrick and 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 his his origins. Oh, there's really so much to say, and of course there are a lot of legends about him. Some of them true, some not. But the man as a as a saint was was really something else. So he was he was not born in Ireland, as many people think. There's even some dispute as to where exactly he was born. But we'll just say here, for sake of argument, uh, that he was Roman by um, nationality. You might say it was all under the the, the Roman Empire at that time. And he grew up, his mother was somehow related to the Bishop of Tours, who happened to be Saint, Saint Martin of, of Tours. Saint Patrick was raised as Catholic, uh, raised a Catholic. When he was 15 years old, this is something to remember because it comes up later in his life. When he was 15, he committed some fault. I don't know exactly what the fault is, but it is said that it was nothing grave. But years later, when he, when another bishop wanted to consecrate him, or even when they wanted to ordain him, many of the clergy brought it up 
against him as a sort of accusation and reason why they shouldn't ordain him. But it was it the fault was nothing. But he wept over it for his, his whole entire life. I think one of the interesting things about his life, though, is that truly in his life you see how God uses very unfortunate circumstances and and brings some good out of it. You see that it's it hits you in the face with St. Patrick. When he was about 16, he was captured and held it as a slave. Actually, he was captured at three different times in his life and made a slave and then would somehow escape or get away and then would again be enslaved. But the first time or one of the first times anyway was when he was 16. And he says that at this point, he still lived in ignorance of God. That didn't mean that he didn't have the true faith. He says what it means is that he wasn't as fervent as he should have been in the love of God. And for that, he wept, he says, for the rest of his life, that he didn't have the fervor that he should have had. But this is about the time that he his true conversion began, because he was taken, along with many of his father's servants, into to Ireland. And there he had to watch the, the cattle or the sheep, whatever it was. I think I've read two different things in two different books. But... He had to tend the, the flocks out there. And of course, the cold and the snow, the rain. And he wasn't given any clothing, was it? Nothing, nothing. It was quite, quite something. He had to suffer much. But he mentions a, a sort of a strong interior grace that really influenced him at this time. And he realized, hey, God put me in these, these circumstances. We're going to make the best of it. And um, that's when he he says that he actually began to, to turn to God in prayer and fasting. And so you see how those those sufferings were actually the source of many graces for him. So it was the beginning of his his true conversion to sanctity. But then after some time in slavery, he was told by God in a dream that he should leave, that there was a ship waiting for him. So, of course, he went and found the ship and it really was waiting there. But when he tried to get aboard the the uh, pagan, the sailors, they were pagans. They said, no, there's no room. We can't take you. So he actually St. Patrick turned around and went back to his um, to his little hut, but praying all the while. And then soon enough, the, the pagan sailors came back and told him, well, there is room after all. So he came back. And it was three days of sailing. And then once they landed, it was in around France back then. They called it Gaul. And it, just been, it had just been devastated with wars just before. So it was almost like a complete desert. So for 27 days, they wandered. But... Um, of course, there was no food. There was a very shortage of food. St. Patrick told the pagans, well, if you pray to God, he'll help. And that same day after they prayed, they came across a um, a whole lot of uh, pigs, which, of course, they were able to, to cook up and have some good uh, bacon or something like that. But in any case, um, later on, he would be taken prisoner again. But then was called back to Ireland again, that famous vision when he saw the little children 
in their mother's wombs, um, calling out to him and begging him to come back to Ireland to help. And so he did. And there he, he faced much opposition and his apostolate suffered an awful lot, but uh, eventually was able to convert Ireland. But you see how great his work was in the fact that they always remained true to their faith despite all of their, um, all the persecutions. Think of, for example, the, the Protestant Reformation. All of Germany left. How Catholic a city that, or country that was. And then all of Northern Europe and many of the, the great Catholic powerhouses there. But Ireland always remained um, always held on to the faith. And then, of course, all the, the other persecutions and the potato famines and, and how the, the Protestant England persecuted them. They always remained true to the faith. And that's a, that's a tribute to St. Patrick and his, his great apostolate. Father, the, the life of a St. Patrick, whether he performed his, his missionary labors in, in Ireland or even really in Nigeria, um, the life of a missionary is something which, I mean, you personally, Father, you have some, some experience with uh, now that um, what had, had at one point been uh, Catholic parts of even this country have uh, turned into wastelands of sorts. And you've had to um, perhaps not endure such trials as, as St. Patrick has, but, but privations nonetheless. Um, the life of a missionary is something we're, we're going to talk about in a very narrow way in just a moment. But before then, I just want to remind our listeners that you're listening to the Liturgical Year on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Joshua Guncher. I am joined by Father Charles McGuire. And today we've been discussing Passion Tide. And so far, the, the Feast of St. Patrick, uh, if, if, if only briefly, and how the life of a missionary in, in Ireland, or as we find out, perhaps uh, even the Irish in Nigeria, um, is is a life that is is met with 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 privations and certain practical issues that we're going to be uh, talking about soon concerning uh, the matter the valid matter for um, bread and wine for the holy sacrifice of the mass. We want to remind you that the liturgical year is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. But permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail m a i l at truerestoration.org. Father, I was using the life of a missionary as a bit of a segue to something that this radio program was originally designed to, to contain. Um, we haven't focused so much on it in the past, but I want to make sure that we, we stay true to our roots, so to speak. And that has to do with the life. We were talking about St. Patrick as a missionary, um, and I was led to... Uh, wonder about the hardships of missionaries and, and certain practical issues that missionaries uh, faced in the past and probably still do today to some extent. The specific thing I wanted to, to bring up with you has to do with being able to say mass in a place where, um, like, a, like in Ireland, that Saint, as St. Patrick found it, um, was a pagan place, which um, may or may not have cultivated vines or had, had grown uh, wheat, um, just in very generic terms, that didn't grow the things you needed to have bread and wine uh, for the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And I, I was wondering how it is that 
that, that missionaries were able to to have altar breads and, and altar wine when they had to go by foot or by a canoe or over mountains and hill and dale hundreds of miles inland into a place that they didn't know and who knew what they were growing. Um, the, the church is very specific as to uh, what is required for, for, for mass. And uh, I know that something like uh, candles are, are required to say mass. And I know our father Nkamake was having some difficulty this is in, now that he's back in Nigeria, finding a source for beeswax candles or for the beeswax even to make candles. Imagine where, whether it's, it's 500 years ago or maybe it's 500 miles away. We're in a place where there is no vineyard and where there's no fields uh, of, of wheat. There are no amber waves of grain anywhere, Father. Hmm. Um, but a priest is going to say the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Perhaps he has a little bottle of wine in, in one pocket and a little canister with, um, with hosts to consecrate in the other. Let's start off by talking about what's what's required, the most basic uh, necessities for uh, the matter of uh, the holy sacrifice of the mass. In terms of in terms of the bread, what is required for uh, for altar bread? And maybe before we even go there, um, there are two aspects to what's required for for bread and wine. There's valid matter and there's licit matter. Mm-hmm. And these are terms of art, which I, I want to make sure our listeners have some idea of, of what those terms mean. Well, for to have valid matter, that means in the case of the, the Holy Eucharist, that um, valid matter is the matter or the bread uh, is able to be, is such that it's able to be changed into body and blood of Christ. In other words, a valid sacrament is a sacrament that works. An invalid one is one that does not work. Right? So you have that. That's the, the for validity. And then lisanity just means it works, but you really shouldn't. There's something that's not in accordance with the law. For So that's the difference there. But um, for the, the bread, actually, it's quite... Um, quite simple it's um the bread has to be made from wheat mixed with natural water and baked in the fire and substantially in crop that's what it says in um, the canon law books so in other words it can't be mixed with strange sorts of grains right um you can make a a host out of rice correct different things like that it must be wheat right for um for validity so you actually, the, that's something you come up with a lot today. Now there's all of these um, gluten-free diets mm-hmm. and everything else. And, and people with celiac disease. Exactly. So you, you, you get asked frequently, well, can you, can you, um, by people that are on those diets, well, can you use these hosts instead because I have this, this allergy to, to gluten? Well, you know, no. We can't. We can maybe break off a little piece, a smaller piece of the host for you, but no, we really can't. Um, uh, can't do the the gluten free 
hosts. And that's not the church being mean. That, that's not the church despising people with, with allergies. I mean, th- there's, there's, there's a necessity for it to be a particular type of grain, in this case, wheat. Correct. And that's, that is all from the uh, establishment of our Lord. We can maybe get into some of that later in the show, perhaps. But, um, you know, the church wants to stick to exactly to what our Lord set up when he gave us this sacrament. And so he used a certain type of bread at the, um, at the last supper for the first mass and so we continue so that as one one of the church fathers said so that when our lord comes back to judge us at the end of time that he finds us still observing those laws of the liturgy that he established Um, and so we stick to that but for instance i i found this interesting because it all it almost makes me think a law is not really made or um, set in writing unless there were some abuses. And I found it interesting to read in um, uh, a book on the sacraments by a Dominican, Father Halligan, that he mentions you cannot use uh, dough that is fried in butter or cooked in water. It's um, that would be invalid matter, but um, that's that's for validity. It has to be made from wheat mixed with water, natural water um, and baked in the fire. And it cannot be substantially incorrupt. So if it's molding or something like that, then um, you you may not use it. It would be invalid. But as far as laicity or lawfulness goes, that it has to be made from the wheat flour. Right. Uh, And then unmixed with substances other than wheat flour and water so like oil or sugar oil sugar yes yeah those things what, one question father the there are eastern rite catholics uh, whose uh, whose host or hosts don't resemble latin rite catholics uh, and, and my understanding is that there are certain rites which are allowed a leavened bread for uh, the Holy Eucharist as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, an unleavened bread, which uh, the, the Roman rite is is one which does not allow the, the leavened bread. Um, Correct. So, I mean, it's it's possible it, it would it, it's possible for uh, someone who's a Catholic, but not a, a, a Latin rite Catholic. Correct. Yeah, that's a that's a thing of an issue of laicity. So for um, for us who are uh, Roman rites or the Western churches, we're sometimes referred to. Um, we use the unleavened bread. That is, it is um, a bread that the dough does not rise. But in the Eastern rite church, uh, Catholic churches over there, they would use uh, leavened bread which does rise in its um, cubed or in a, a sort of a triangle shape. And there's symbolism behind both types, and we'll, we'll learn about that. But um, in, the, in our rite, the Roman rite, only unleavened bread is, is allowed um, for Lysaeth. It would be sinful for us to use, um, to use leavened bread. Well, Father, just real quickly, the way most 
hosts are baked now. I've never baked them. I've never even seen it being being done in person. But I understand that it uses sort of like a waffle iron with with a very a very thin instead of a, a waffle shape. There's a basically a host impression, and that the the dough is put in there, and it's it's basically baked between two hot hot irons. Yes. In fact, I believe that if you look at some of those old pictures, there's a famous picture of Saint Therese of Lisieux. Um, with her sisters in in their outside, Saint Therese has um, a saborium and she's filling it. And one of the other sisters actually has one of those irons. It's in front of her, and they're making hosts. I believe I've seen that. Um, so it might be look worth looking through some old holy cards of that. Um, but that's exactly what it is. Usually, with an image of the crucified Savior. Or some other holy image, but it's not necessary to have it. There are some that will use just plain hosts, or maybe that have an indentation, indentation of a cross to make it easier to break. So nothing has to be on the host. Correct. Correct. Does it need to be a particular shape? Uh, round, circular, uh, of course, for for laicity, of course. And the priest hosts generally, I mean, it, it seems to be larger than the host that a um, a, a lay person would would receive i mean is that is that required or it is required and a priest may consecrate a small host that the size that the people normally receive in holy communion he may do that but only in necessity that for well for instance it happened i remember uh poor bishop dolan had to do that once uh, it was through my fault he was going to one of my missions, and um, I'd forgotten to to send up the large host with him. So he had to consecrate a small one. And, um, of course, you have to remove all the scandal and explain to the people why you're doing it um, and things like that. So it can be done, but you are supposed to use the, the larger host for, for that. Now, Father, with the holy sacrifice of the Mass, you can't just consecrate a host. You do need both the bread and the wine. You couldn't just have one but not the other and be able to say Mass, correct? Correct. Obviously, because of that mystical symbolism of the separation of the body from the blood. So that is that is the reason. But though obviously, yes, you have to have the wine for a valid Mass, for a complete sacrifice. Now this is, I can understand a missionary taking a sack of wheat. It seems like it would it would last a long time. It wouldn't go stale. You could grind as much as you needed to make some hosts, and then you could do that on a regular basis. But in thinking about the the wine, wine is heavy. I mean, I, I can see whether it was in bottles or casks or in wine skins. It still it weighs almost as much, or I guess maybe it weighs more than water. I, I don't know exactly. But the idea of carrying around that much liquid to last for any length of time seems seems rather difficult. I want to ask, is there a, a minimum amount of wine that you need to say a Mass? Minimum amount? Um, you must add water to the, the wine. So you never want to put any more than about a fifth of the amount of water than wine, as opposed to the wine becomes sort of iffy. You know, a third of the amount would become doubtful, doubtfully valid matter. So at le- you want to at least have that much. You Generally about a draft of... Okay. So you need to be able to 
to, to drink it. To drink it, yes. Okay. It couldn't just be a drop. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was was trying to figure out how it would be possible if you went to a place, let's say a, a, a desert nation or um, a tropical jungle or something like that. And how you, I mean, you wouldn't keep grapes, and it might even be it might even be difficult to keep wine. And I started thinking about um, you know what you actually require in terms of matter for the wine. That it's not just wine. You can pronounce on it afterwards, Father. But I had wondered whether or not we could actually use something like raisins which are grapes that are dried and can store for a long time and, and, and are pretty light because they have the water taken out of them. Um, and I, I wondered if this was something that you, know, you could take the, the raisins, soak them in water, they plump back up, they look like grapes, and whether you could then juice them and have a little wine from that. I mean, I know you'll give us some, some specifics as to the normal course of, of, of winemaking in, in the vineyard when the, the, the wine is destined for a Catholic altar, but just for the sake of a Catholic miscellany here, could we do something like that? You could. You could in cases of necessity. That's that's one of those things you wouldn't do just because right. you like it or anything like that. But in case of necessity, you could make wine from, from the raisins, uh, which is interesting. But you couldn't make it from, for instance, the skins of grapes or the stems. Like the leftovers from somebody else's wine. Exactly. Okay. So the quality of the wine should be good. After all, it's, it's going to be changed into the body and blood of Christ. So you don't want to use something that's uh, not quite as good. Well, what can we use? I mean, just the basic requirements for, for altar wine. Basic requirements are just that it, again, to quote from the, the canon law, it has to be the ripe grapes of the vine. And again, substantially incorrupt. For those of you that might not know much about wine, wine, when it sits too long and becomes bad, turns into vinegar. Once it has become vinegar, it is no longer wine. Therefore, it's not valid matter for the sacrifice. There's a period in between where it's still wine. It's not yet vinegar. So then, but it's, it's started to corrupt a little bit, starting to go and, and you can taste it sometimes. I've never come across that thing, thank goodness, but that's when the matter is still valid. But if you knowingly use it and without reason, it would be a sin. So if you, if you were surprised by it, if you're surprised, that's, that's a whole different ballgame there so it would still be a valid matter for the sacrifice but you wouldn't want to use it again once you realized hey this is starting to change unless there's a very serious uh, proportionate reason so we can't use verju which i think is the is the juice of the unripened grape which is probably very acidic tasting and we can't all the way on the other end right through the grapes life cycle we couldn't use vinegar the wine is now turned into vinegar somewhere in the middle what about grape juice no it's it has to be um fermented it has to be totally fermented in a true wine so it needs to have alcohol in it it does need to have alcohol generally between the alcohol content has to be between 12 and 18 percent that's generally where you want to keep it one of the things that I've, I've heard people mention and this is sort of along this not identical but similar lines to those concerns about those who have gluten intolerances or celiac disease for consuming uh, the a consecrated host, um, for priests who 
perhaps have, have struggled with alcoholism. How would this type of situation be dealt with? Obviously, you couldn't use that, but the, the priest would have to use a very, very little amount of wine. I would say that's the best way to handle it. If it's a case where even that would not work, then he would just have to abstain from saying Mass in many cases. I think um, with the grace of state, obviously, and the, the sacramental graces, not only of holy orders, but of the, the Holy Eucharist, generally speaking, you can get over that tendency to alcoholism by just using that very small amount of wine in this sacrifice. Like you said, it only has to be very minimal, very just enough for one, one draft, one swallow. And just one last thing, Father, is it required, I know with the ablutions, you're using the wine and then you're using the wine and the water. Can the ablutions be left out? No, you must purify the, the chalice afterwards. But in a case like that, where the, the priest might have um, an inclination to alcoholism. Or even just if, the, let's say, wine was so scarce. Even that, yeah. Any any serious reason, such as those, um, would be fine. Then you, or for instance, what, what happens a lot for us on the mission circuit or just here at St. Gertrude's, where we're saying one mass right after the other, well, obviously you can't take the wine in the ablutions or you break your your communion fast. So you would just take the water in that case. And that would suffice to purify the chalice. As we close out this episode, we've covered the liturgical season of Passion Tide, along with a little bit on the feast of St. Patrick, uh, the Apostle of Ireland and the patron saint of Nigeria. We've also talked a little bit about what makes valid matter, uh, what makes proper altar bread and, and proper altar wine, with a little bit of interesting Catholic miscellany thrown in there. I want to thank Father McGuire for his time, and I'm glad that he was able to join us uh, on this episode. I look forward to having you back in the next episode. But before we go, Father, is there anything else you'd like to add in summary before we close out the show? No, just, um, you know, we should all um, really use this um, season of Lent, Passion Tide, well, and pray for one another. All right, that our Lord has given us the, the beautiful doctrine of communion of the saints to help one another out. So please let's all pray for each other for a good and fruitful Lent. You have any questions for Father McGuire or for me or for feedback on this episode? Of course, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at liturgicalyear at truerestoration.org and we'll certainly pass along your questions or comments to Father. We'd also like to take this moment to remind you that anything you send us will keep strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond any sort of material contribution, the most important donation you can make to our work here is your prayer. Please think of having a mass offered or say a rosary for even a simple ave for our work the next time we pray. For the Restoration... I'm Joshua Guncher. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.